Welcome to the Victorian Parent Council VPC Parent Podcast Series. VPC is a registered charity organisation dedicated to everyone who support parents in educating their children. I'm Jackie Vanderveld, your host today. Good evening and welcome. Uh, my name is Jackie Vanderveld and it's my great pleasure to be hosting this session for the Victorian Parents Council. Uh, and this is our last VPC live for the year, but we, I assure you we will be back. It's my great pleasure to introduce to you uh, Dr. Mairead Cardamon-Breen. Um, Dr. Mairead, I'm going to say that for short because I've got, a, I've got a long name That's like fun. yours as well. <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. Mairead comes to us from Monash University. Um, she's a postdoctoral research fellow and psychologist at the Turner Institute of Brain and Mental Health. She holds a Doctor of Psychology and Clinical Psychology, specialising in child, adolescent and family psychology. And Mairead has worked clinically with young people fam and families across various public and private settings. Her research with parenting and youth mental health groups focuses on translating research evidence into practical resources for parents to support their teenagers' mental health. And in particular, Mairead is a lead investigator on the Partners in Parenting program, which is an evidence-based online program that aims to equip parents with the knowledge and skills that may help prevent depression, anxiety and anxiety problems in their teenagers' Oh my goodness, do we need your advice now, Mairead? <laughs> what a what a an horrendous couple of years we've had. <laughs> and parents really struggling with this. Uh, so I'm over to you. You've got the floor. Um, take it away. And if anyone's got questions, please pop them in the QA and we will get to those towards the end of the session. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks so much uh, for having me here to speak about this topic. Um, I absolutely agree. Very important at the moment um, for families across Australia and particularly here in Victoria um, with what we've been going through for the last 18 months or so. Um, before I jump into the content, I'd like to uh, begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we all meet today, uh, wherever that may be. Uh, for you, for me, that is the peoples of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Uh, so as Jackie said, tonight I'm going to be talking about supporting teenagers uh, during this phase of the, the pandemic and beyond as well. Everything will be sort of applicable um, to other challenges that young people might face. Um, just to flag that, that most of what I talk about tonight, it's aimed at parents of high school age kids, um, but also most of what I talk about will very much still be relevant um, for parents and families with slightly older or younger kids. Um, if you are a parent of a child that's sort of outside of this age range, I just suggest that um, you use your judgment as to which parts you think are sort of most relevant to your family situation. Um, also to, to flag that this is a really big uh, topic. I really can't cover uh, everything that I would recommend um, to support uh, adolescent mental health um, within sort of the next 45 minutes or so. Um, so I'm going to try to cover a, a fair bit of content um, that I think is most relevant to what a lot of young people um, are sort of telling us they're going through at the moment, um, particularly at this stage of the pandemic and give an overview of, of a number of sort of practical strategies that parents can try out. Um, but there really is so much more um, that I could talk about. Um, so just to let you know in advance um, that everything I cover tonight is based on um, 
our research here at the Parenting and Youth Mental Health Group, as well as a lot of other research by other um, researchers and experts around the, around the world. Um, and all of, of what I talk about tonight, plus a whole heap more, um, is covered in a few online resources um, that we've uh, recently released and produced, and they're all freely available um, to all parents in Australia. Um, this includes some guidelines, um, as well as the online program that Jackie just mentioned. Um, so if you're interested in more of this topic, um, if what I talk about is, is useful and interesting for you, but you want more, um, I will um, alert you to some links that you can check out to, to see those programs and guidelines. Um, and I believe VPC will also send around a document um, with all of those links. Um, if you complete that, um, the evaluation at the end of this webinar, that will be all provided as well. Um, so lots to cover. I'll get through what I can um, in the next 45 minutes. Um, before I actually get into the strategies, I, I think it's important to spend a few moments thinking about um, what's actually happening um, for all teenagers, what we actually expect, um, what is normal in this uh, phase of life um, and why. Um, so, uh, again, could give a whole webinar on this, but just to highlight some of the key sort of emotional and psychological things um, that are going on for young people in this stage of life. Um, I won't speak much about the hormonal changes, but um, as we all know, there's a lot going on physically um, during adolescence, um, a lot of this um, related to hormones. Um, but the other thing that, that's really relevant for what I'm talking about tonight um, is brain development. Um, so there's a lot of lot happening in, in these young people's brains, a really rapid period of growth and development. Um, and in fact, sort of the second greatest uh, period of brain growth and development um, in our lives. Um, second only to infancy, sort of the first few um, years of life. Um, so that's really critical to keep in the back of our minds. Um, we also know, I'm sure no parent will be surprised um, to hear that with puberty comes um, increased uh, frequency, but also intensity of emotions. So for the first time, um, adolescents are experiencing um, really intense um, and, and frequent emotions, but particularly negative emotions. They're getting a lot more of those. Um, and this is, you know, why we see these kind of typical teenage mood swings. Um, so all of this we very much expect. Um, back to the sort of brain development. Um, one of the other things, if, if we look at what parts of the brain are developing and when um, throughout this period, we know that some areas of teenage brains are less developed, sort of less mature than other areas. Um, and so they tend to rely on those areas that are, are more developed. Um, and this includes um, areas of the brain that are responsible for emotions. Um, this sort of emotional center of the brain you might hear, um, which we call the amygdala, is relatively more developed than other parts of the brain, um, including the front parts so of the brain kind of somewhat develops from back to front. So the frontal parts of our brain, the frontal cortex, and specifically the prefrontal cortex um, is quite immature still in adolescence and continues to develop um, well into the 20s. Um, and this part of the brain is what um, is really crucial for what we call sort of higher um, order functioning, executive functions. Um, these are the things that teenagers are not so well known um, for doing. Um, so they're rational thinking, they're problem solving, um, planning and executing tasks and controlling impulses. So this is one of the reasons um, teenagers are, are not so good at these things. Their brain is actually not developed um, yet. So what this leads to is those really strong emotions that they're experiencing, but without the ability, the skills to actually manage these emotions yet. Um, and for this reason, we get this sort of impulsivity um, and acting based on emotions. 
Um, so just sort of useful background information to keep in mind um, when you are sort of looking at the way your teenager is feeling and behaving, that there is, is actually a really strong biological um, explanation for this. Uh, so that's sort of what's happening in the brain and emotionally um, for young people. Um, the other thing that's really critical during this um, sort of roughly secondary school age is their social um, development. So this is the period in our lives where we start to really develop our sense of self, you know, looking at who we are as, our per as a person or our identity. Um, and to do this, young people really need to be spending more time um, with their peers, with their friends, and they become less reliant um, on their family. And this is really important that they do this. Um, so we actually need, teenagers need to be spending more time away from family. Um, in order for them to develop that independence to, to develop into independent young adults. Um, we know that the, the nature of relationships change a lot. So a relationship, say a friendship between two teenagers is going to be quite different in the quality of that relationship um, compared to, to say primary school age children um, and teenagers also become, because they're developing this sense of identity and sense of self, they become really quite self-conscious um, and, and quite sensitive to other people's um, opinions or criticisms of themselves. So that's just sort of some of the key things in terms of social development. Um, the reason I bring that up is um, for very obvious reasons, um, the pandemic has caused um, some pretty major disruptions um, for a lot of young people um, in this sense. So, you know, they need to be spending more time um, away from family and with their peers, but obviously lockdowns really disrupted that for some teens more than others, depending on how engaged they were with their peers um, online. Um, and also to keep in mind that um, teenage social sort of situations, relationships, their social environment at school and elsewhere changes a lot more rapidly, just like their brain does and just like their moods do, you know, their, their social circles circles change really rapidly. Um, so for us, a few weeks away, a few months, you know, even 18 months that we've been facing this, our lives and our relationships may not have actually changed drastically. Um, but we need to keep in mind that this is a really long time um, for the life of a young person, particularly looking at those who have been at home, you know, doing online learning and not seeing their friends for many months. So just not to underestimate um, the impact that this has had on some young people. Um, in terms of, of mental health problems, I'm not going to talk too much about all the sorts of mental health problems that may arise in adolescence, um, but just looking at um, what are we sort of trying to prevent um, here? What are the most common um, things to look out for? And they are um, for young people and, and also for adults, um, predominantly anxiety disorders and um, depression or mood disorders. Um, and the important thing to note um, for parents and adolescents um, is that the onset of these disorders, when they tend to come on, um, does really peak um, in the teenage years. Um, so we know that of, of all the people that, you know, will go on to develop a mental health problem at any time in their life, um, about half of those cases will actually develop um, by like mid adolescents, mid-teenage years, and, and nearly three-quarters of them by mid-20s. Um, so unfortunately, this is the time of life that we do see these disorders um, peak. There's lots of other things that also might come up um, during adolescence. Again, I'm not going to talk specifically about all of these disorders, but just um, for parents' knowledge, um, and, and some of these have really been, uh, have got some media attention recently in terms of the pandemic um, as well. Um, eating disorders um, and disordered eating behaviours, things like dieting, um, unhealthy relationships with food and exercise, binge eating, these kind of things often um, come on early in life. Um, substance use as well, so alcohol or other drugs, you know, can present in adolescence. 
um, and sleep problems as well from sort of milder sleep problems through to insomnia and sleep disorders, you know, also common in adolescence. The important thing that, that I want to flag before we talk about parenting strategies um, is that even though actually a lot of the risk factors, a lot of the things that contribute to, to mental health problems actually are not really within our control um, so much. So we know that a lot of the risk factors are genetic, which obviously we can't change. We can't change our gender. You know, the different genders are, are at higher risk of different disorders, early life events, these kind of things we actually can't control. Um, but the really good news and the, what, the, what our research focuses on is what parents actually can do to protect their teenagers either to support them to stay well if they're already doing well, um, to reduce their risk um, of going on to develop these problems, um, or to respond early, you know, to pick up when things aren't going so well, to respond, you know, in a helpful, appropriate way to help reduce the impact of depression and anxiety. So that's sort of what we're looking at um, in our programs, our research, um, and what I'll talk about tonight. And we really essentially think that parents are one of the best resources, the best resource there is to help protect their child's mental health. All right, so that's the background. Um, in terms of, of tips and things that parents um, can be aware of and try out during the pandemic, um, the first thing I'm going to speak about is emotions. Um, as I just talked about with, with the brain development um, side of things, um, we know that adolescents are going to be experiencing a lot of strong emotions, and, and these are the kinds of emotions that we would be expecting um, during the pandemic and, you know, what's come up through our research. Um, and I'm sure none of these are, are particularly surprising to parents in the audience. Um, you've probably seen a lot of these, you know, expressions of anger, fear, sadness, frustration um, over the last 18 months. So I really just wanted to highlight that all of these are really expected um, sort of normal reactions, um, not necessarily a reason for concern that your, your young person is feeling these strong emotions. Um, but what we need to do as the adults around them is to help them learn how to manage um, these emotions. All right, so how uh, can you as a parent do that? How can you respond particularly sort of in the moment when they're experiencing strong emotions? Um, so I'll go through some helpful approaches and then some less helpful approaches. The first thing we need to do to, to help a child or adolescent um, to manage or, or regulate their emotions is to help identify what it actually is that they're feeling. Um, so really important that the first step is actually to help them put a label on, on what they're feeling. You know, I'm feeling angry, scared, sad, whatever it might be, depending where your child is at in terms of their age, their maturity, their understanding of emotions. This might be a lot harder than it sounds. So you might really need to spend some time actually discussing with them, perhaps giving them some ideas, asking, inquiring what it is they're feeling to figure out what that emotion might be. Um, so that's a really important first step. The second thing, which is, is more on, on you as a parent or an adult there, is that it's really important that regardless of what the emotion is, that you really respond with empathy and validate for them that it's okay to be feeling whatever it is that they're feeling, that that is valid. Um, it doesn't mean that you necessarily agree with what, you, what, you're, what they are saying. Um, or that you feel the same way, but it's validating that it's okay to feel this way. We want to really separate the emotion from anything else. So the behaviour, you might disagree with their behaviour or what they're saying, but you're not disagreeing with the emotion. The emotion is valid. It's how they are feeling. And this can be, hard, again, easier said than done, particularly if it's sort of in the heat of the moment and perhaps your te teen is sort of behaving in a way that you disagree with. So once you've identified and responded with empathy, then it's important um, for you to help them to sort of learn to understand what's going on for them, 
what they're feeling and why. So what's led to this? What does this feeling mean for them? Um, and this can help them um, to learn how to process their emotions and also help you to understand what's going on for them. Um, so important to, to have sort of an open conversation, try to use open-ended questions, um, so not sort of yes-no questions to really try to understand um, what's happened for them. So, you know, is there a reason you might be feeling this way? Has anything happened? Um, can you tell me more about that? Um, and in summary, essentially, if we ask teenagers what they want from their parents, um, particularly when they're upset or, or angry or something about any situation, we generally hear something about, I just want them to actually listen, to understand. They don't get it. They don't understand. They're not listening to me. So I would say to take away from this, to listen more um, and talk less where possible. Just a couple of really common things to try to avoid um, as much as you can. And these are really easy things um, to sort of walk into. Um, one of them is to respond to your teenager's emotion with your own emotion. Um, I'm sure we've all been in, in situations, probably many situations in our lives where somebody is expressing anger towards us, perhaps they're, they're shouting or yelling, and it can be a really automatic response um, to meet that anger with more anger and yell and shout back. Um, and, and hopefully most people would agree that typically that doesn't uh, tend to end very well. Um, we know that we can't really have, make rational decisions and then have sort of useful conversations, um, you know, when we've got two people who are really emotional. So we tend to just escalate each other. Um, and, and at the moment, particularly, I'm going to be talking a fair bit about anxiety tonight. Um, we know that if we meet anxiety with more anxiety, that everybody just ends up feeling more anxious and you can get really stuck um, in this sort of vicious cycle um, of anxiety. So if your child is coming to you um, with anxiety, they're really worried, try to avoid um, sort of reinforcing that anxiety by by being anxious yourself even if you feel that way try to avoid um, escalating their anxiety um, so that's one thing to try to avoid um, the other one um, is to to avoid dismissing or sort of downplaying their emotions so this is sort of the opposite of the, the validation and empathy um, so sort of saying things like oh just get over it toughen up it's really not that bad you know stop it um, these kind of things, although they might be well-intentioned um, and perhaps, you, you know, that's what you think, that it really isn't that bad, we want to really avoid um, dismissing their emotions. So try to, to avoid those kind of statements um, where possible. All right. Um, so that's emotions. So next I'm going to talk um, a little bit about talking about the pandemic um, with your teenager. Um, and I know this might sound a bit silly because we're all um, really quite sick of talking about and hearing about the pandemic and we're all pretty keen to just get on um, with our lives at this point. Um, but it actually really is important um, to keep these conversations going, particularly with young people, so that you can help them to navigate this time. Um, so again, a, a few helpful and less helpful things. Um, the first is what I just said, to, so to keep those conversations going and to actually actively check in with your teenager um, regularly about how they're going. Um, and when I say regularly, I don't mean sort of excessively, you know, every single day asking them all the time how they're going, but, but at a minimum at least thinking about as the situation is changing and there's actually new information coming into play, that would be a good time to check in with them. Um, or perhaps if you're noticing that they might be struggling um, a little bit or their behaviours changed, maybe checking in then. Um, or you could make it a regular thing, you know, if you think that would work for your family. So, you know, weekly dinners or whatever it might be that you actually talk about this. But either way, just keep the conversations going. 
Um, and when you do talk about it, um, explicitly ask them what they are most worried about at that time. Um, don't assume that what they're concerned about or worried about at the moment is actually the same as yesterday or last week or last year. Um, you may actually be surprised, so keep that question. Um, and also ask how they're coping with that. So we want to really elicit from them what they're doing, um, and that's going to help you sort of understand whether the way they're coping is helpful or less helpful and, and help them to learn other strategies. Um, also really important that when you're talking about this, that you maintain a calm and, and sort of reassuring approach. Um, again, even if you don't always feel that way yourself, try to portray that sense of, of reassurance um, from you as the parent. Um, if you're not sure where to start, um, perhaps, or you're struggling to um, get your teenager to open up about this, perhaps ask if they have any questions, you know, start by asking them what they actually know and if there's anything else that's missing. Um, and the other thing um, throughout the pandemic, but this is also a really useful skill for them to learn throughout their lives, is to filter information um, that they are getting online. You know, we know teenagers are on social media a lot. So help them to try and figure out what is the sort of reliable, credible, um, trustworthy information um, that is worth their attention and that they should be making their decisions based on um, and what is sort of, you know, not fact but actually fiction. Um, lots of strategies I could talk about in terms of actually helping them to be sort of more media savvy in that way. Um, there's great resources online about that as well if you need um, more information, but I think this is a really good opportunity um, for us to teach teenagers um, to be sort of media savvy. Um, in terms of what's not so helpful in these conversations um, about the pandemic or any topics related to the pandemic, um, goes without saying, but we know that um, lecturing teenagers they're pretty good at tuning out um very quickly so try to keep it a two-way sort of open conversation or you know that they will uh stop listening um the other thing to to try not to do particularly when there, there is genuine risk invo involved in this situation is to focus on those worst case scenarios and to catastrophize um this is sort of an easier way to get people's attention it might make them you know you might think that this is a good way to catch them um but it's it's unlikely to be um, an effective way of communicating. Um, the other things to, to avoid is that there's a lot of information teenagers are being exposed to and, and we can only shield them so much um, from what's out there. But within the family environment, um, we want to make sure that we are shielding um, children and teenagers from things that are really um, beyond their age um, or maturity. Um, so, so one example would be things like family finances and, and what's happening with parents' work situation and things. Um, we want to shield them from those kind of additional stresses that are really for the adults around them to manage. Um, and, and just a final point, if we're talking about anything um, pandemic-related and, and the child is anxious, upset, you know, feeling a strong emotion, emotion, try to keep talking through that um, rather than ending the conversation because they are upset. So a big topic for everybody um, at the moment um, is managing returning to school and other activities. Um, so even though this is a big relief um, for most of us and what you know a lot of us have really been wanting for a very long time, um, it still is really anxiety provoking for a lot of people, um, including young people. So many teenagers will have adjusted to these new routines with online learning and the like. Um, and it's really important that we don't expect them just to sort of go back to their normal pre-pandemic selves and lifestyles straight away. 
Um, and in fact, we, we do expect that some teens and perhaps many teens are actually going to have this period of actually increased anxiety um, as we transition. And it has been quite, a, you know, in some ways a, a quick transition from months of lockdown to, you know, relatively soon we're, we're back to school um, in the face of, of COVID-19. So really important to adjust expectations. Um, in that way. Um, and we know that for a lot of young people, actually, um, online learning was a relief from anxiety. So particularly for young people who struggled with things like social anxiety, they might have had social difficulties or bullying, they actually preferred online learning. So it's going to be particularly hard um, for those kids to get back to school. Um, I'll go through a, a few specific anxiety strategies in a moment. Um, but just as a general approach to this, I think it is really important um, to take things gradually um, if needed, you know, unless your teenager really is absolutely raring to go and wants to get back out into everything and they really seem to be able to, to cope with that, um, then that's fine. But otherwise, I'd really suggest the sort of approach of just because we can go back um, to almost everything we used to be able to do doesn't mean that we actually have to. Um, so I'd suggest focusing on introducing um, activities or the things that are most important to your teenager, your children, your family um, first, and then considering what other things to reintroduce afterwards. Um, and, and, you know, obviously school is a bit of a non-negotiable, so it might be about getting used to going back to school before, before going back to, you know, all the extracurricular activities, these kind of things. And I think this is something that we as adults can really apply as well. I actually think it's a good chance to stop and reflect on what parts of pre-COVID life do we actually want back and which parts perhaps, um, you know, could we actually consider not reintroducing. Okay, so let's talk about anxiety, which I think is, is probably one of the major emotions or, or feelings that a lot of people are experiencing um, at the moment as we get back into life. Um, so the first thing that's really important for parents to understand and for parents to help their both their children and teenagers to understand is that anxiety in itself is not a problem. Um, it's, an, it's an everyday um, experience for all of us and everyday anxiety um, is absolutely normal and necessary. In fact, it's helpful. So we need anxiety to do many things in our lives to help us be motivated um, to prepare or to perform at our best, um, with the, the typical examples being things like um, exams or job interviews. You know, most people would be um, at least anxious to an extent about these things, and that's what motivates us to do what we need to do. Um, obviously, the very relevant example at the moment would be actual infection with COVID-19. Um, we wouldn't do all the things that we do with our mask wearing and social distancing and hand hygiene and things if we didn't have any level of anxiety about contracting the virus. Um, so we need to make sure that we draw the distinction between normal anxiety that is a part of life for everybody and an actual anxiety disorder, um, which is quite different. And I'll touch on um, what signs to look out for um, in that sense towards the end. Um, so, so when we're looking at normal everyday anxiety, um, what's important is to help teams learn how to manage that everyday anxiety so that it doesn't become a problem. And, and essentially two, two ways you can do that, two ways you should do sort of both approaches. One is to actively help your teams or to teach them um, how to, to cope with anxiety. And I'll suggest a few strategies in a minute. Um, and the other is to set a good example yourself, to teach them by doing it yourself. So to use helpful coping strategies for your own anxiety and to actually share that with them. 
So let's look at um, responding to anxiety um, in the moment and how you can um, support your teenager when they are feeling anxious inevitably. I'm actually going to start with the, the strategies um, that are not helpful, um, and that is because these are actually our, for most people, these are the natural instincts, um, the things that we would do when we're anxious. And the first big one is to avoid whatever it is that makes us feel anxious. This is a really logical sort of practical thing um, that we would do. So very easy to get rid of anxiety by just don't face what is making me anxious. Um, also very effective in the short term. You just remove yourself from the situation, your anxiety will reduce very quickly. But in the long term, this is really not helpful um, for many reasons. Um, I'll, I'll go for just a few of them. The first being um, that the longer we avoid something, um, the harder it is going to be, the more anxious we are going to be in future if we face it. Um, we learn by avoiding that we actually can't cope, that this situation is terrifying. I won't be able to cope if I face this, therefore I keep avoiding it, and that anxiety really increases um, over time. Um, and, of course, avoidance in the long term is just not possible. We cannot ever avoid everything that will make us anxious and we're going to end up with more and more and more things that would make us anxious because we're avoiding every everything that brings on any anxiety um, so really important that we actually don't just avoid everything that makes us anxious the other um, sort of natural instinct that a lot of um, people will have when somebody else is experiencing anxiety is to respond with anxiety um, very natural response for parents, particularly if they are seeing that their child um, or adolescent is distressed and is anxious, that actually will, um, you know, evoke feelings of anxiety in you um, as well as a parent. So important to try to use strategies to maintain your own calmness, reduce your anxiety um, when your child is feeling anxious. The other really uh, natural parental instinct is to jump in and rescue them. Um, and this is something that you need to do, um, you know, with young children in particular. They're actually not capable of facing situations and, and solving problems uh, for themselves. But in adolescence, we really need to start teaching um, our children to manage uh, situations to cope with their anxiety themselves. So the, the issue with parents jumping in and helping um, all the time when teenagers are feeling anxious is that it just doesn't teach them how to manage. Um, and actually what it does is it shows them or teaches them that they can't cope without you. Um, and that they need to rely on you. So when they're ultimately faced with a situation that makes them anxious and you're not there, because that's what will happen, um, they're stuck feeling like they can't cope without you. And again, could talk a lot more about that, but these are sort of some of the, the main um, unhelpful responses that most people will find themselves naturally drawn to do at some point. So instead, um, what, what can you do? Um, most of these are essentially the opposite um, the first one I've already covered, but again, really important that you validate that it's okay that they are feeling this way. They are feeling anxious. It's okay. You are going to help them to get through this, being empathic. The second one uh, is the opposite of avoidance, which is to, rather than avoid, to approach something to essentially fight the fear by facing the fear. And we would call this, this is also really helpful for, for not just everyday anxiety, but also more clinical sort of anxiety disorders. This is what we'd call exposure. Um, so essentially, we want to work up gradually to facing whatever it is that they're anxious about. Um, so again, with the example with COVID, if they're worried about infection or worried about 
for example, going to a supermarket or something, um, we would build that up gradually. We wouldn't just drag them along to a supermarket, you know, in the middle of peak hour at a really large shopping centre. So you want to work with small steps, but encourage them to gradually face um, that fear and making sure that they're feeling that they are ready, at least for that first step. So we don't want to push um, beyond what somebody feels they can cope with because that might end up backfiring. The other thing that's really important for people around somebody who is working on facing their, their anxiety or their fears is to really recognise and praise them for all the efforts that they are um, making to face that anxiety. So if you've got a young person who's really struggling to get back um, into um, school and normal life, really making sure that you're recognising and praising the efforts when they are doing that. And the other thing is to help them feel in control of what they're doing. So if you're working with facing um, fears, to help them have some ownership of what you're doing. All right. Um, so that's that's a, a whirlwind approach um, to exposure. Again, lots more resources um, that I can point you to about this. Um, the other important thing to think about if we're looking at anxiety um, is, is what's underlying um, what they're saying or what they're expressing. Is there something actually below the surface there? Um, so this is a, a common example that's happening at the moment with kids reluctant to go back to school. Um, and it's important for us as a person not in that situation um, to, to have an open conversation with that person to figure out why they're actually struggling. What is it about going back to school that's making them particularly worried? Um, because it's going to be really hard to address that if we don't actually know or if we're making an assumption um, that it's, you know, based on one thing, but actually they're really worried about something else. Um, so just an example here, we've got a young person saying they don't want to go back to school. These are a few examples of what could be underneath that, but there's many more. And we treat this kind of differently depending on what the underlying worry is. So if you sort of find out you have this conversation with your young person and you find out that actually they're worried about going back to school because they're really worried about getting COVID or, or spreading it. Um, then you want to look at, okay, what strategies? Well, firstly, you want to look at, is this a realistic concern? Is this actually irrational or sort of rational? And in this case, I would say, you know, there is some risk of COVID, obviously. Um, so you want to look at how realistic it is um, and then look at, okay, what can we do? How can we make them feel safe? How can we help them to feel more prepared? And then you take that gradual approach. So that's just sort of one quick example. We could have another young person saying exactly the same thing, that they don't want to go back to school but actually they're really worried about academics. So they've, you know, been doing homeschooling for so long um, that they're worried that they've really fallen behind or about their future sort of educational prospects after the pandemic. So in this case, we all want to look at, okay, well, is this actually valid? You know, have they really fallen behind perhaps more than you'd realised? Um, so is this a really realistic or perhaps are they actually just you know, slightly exaggerating and they're, they're no more behind than others. So you might need to actually chat to the school about that to figure out um, what's going on. And then maybe if they are genuinely really behind at school, maybe we need to look at solutions to help them um, to catch up or to do whatever's needed. Or maybe we need a bit of reassurance from the school that they're actually okay where they're at, that they're going to be able to catch up when they come back. So just, just a bit of an example. And this is the kind of activity um, that you could actually sit down with your teenager and work through as well. Um, another a really um, helpful strategy when we're feeling anxious and particularly during times of uncertainty, um, which we're certainly finding ourselves in during this pandemic, um, is to try and focus on what we can control um, in a situation um, and try to accept what we can't. 
Um, so running with um, the same example, um, oh, sorry, just, yeah, so, so something you can do um, and something that you can teach to your young person as well. So this is really helpful. I think a lot of adults can really benefit from this, um, but also a practical activity that you can sit down and teach um, your teenager as well. So literally get out a piece of paper if they're worried about a particular situation and brainstorm with them, try to get them to come up with most of this content, a list of things they can control and a list of things that they can't. Um, so if we go with that example of, of um, fear of contracting COVID, um, there's quite a few things we can't control here. You know, we obviously can't control other people's behaviours or what the rules are or, you know, what the school situation is. Um, and we also can't control whether we come into contact with someone who's COVID positive. And it's important that we actually acknowledge, and again, with empathy and validation, that this is a, a, a real fear and that that's okay um, to feel that. It's actually realistic. It's not, this list of things we can't control is not about sort of just brushing them off um, and dismissing, oh, well, you can't control those, so don't worry about it. Um, it's actually looking at, okay, these are the things we need to work on accepting. Um, but to do that, it might be really helpful to come up with a list of things that we actually can control. And these are what you want to focus on and try to grow this list. Think of strategies, other parts, you know, little bits and pieces that they can control. So we want to look at these things and see, okay, well, I can't control other people's behaviour, but I can control my own. I do have some say over who I see. Um, and what are all the other things I can do to make me feel more in control in this situation that's actually a bit out of control? So if you've got a young person that's, that's struggling with some kind of sense of uncertainty or a situation that you think um, is feeling a bit out of control for them, perhaps consider um, doing something like this as well. All right, so just in the last five minutes or so, um, I've just sort of spoken about uh, everyday anxiety, the anxiety and emotions that we expect um, most young people to be feeling at the moment. Um, but when does that go sort of beyond normal adolescent um, hormones and mood swings and emotional responses and, and goes a bit beyond into what might need more professional help, might be the early signs of, of a mental health problem or a, a developed mental health problem. And there's essentially a, a, a three things that you'd want to look at here. Um, the first is that is it impacting their day-to-day -day life? You know, are they actually struggling to function in areas that they used to be doing okay in? So maybe they used to be doing fine at school. They were going to school every day. You know, they were doing however, however well they typically do at school and socially, but that's really slipped backwards lately. Perhaps, you know, they used to enjoy spending time with particular people, um, but now they're really isolating from friends or family or they're not doing the things that they used to enjoy or not enjoying the things they used to do. So the impact on their day-to-day -day life is a really important indicator that if these areas are, are impacted, um, we might want to be a bit more concerned. The other thing is just how long it's been going on for. So is it just a reaction um, to a situation? Um, and if it's a temporary reaction, it's improving with time, perhaps the situation changes or they're becoming better able to cope with it, then we wouldn't be as concerned. But if it's really persisting, um, depends what we're looking at, but somewhere in the realms of weeks, um, two months, but most importantly, not improving over time, then this might also be a bit more concerning. Um, and then the third thing is just how severe is it? You know, is it really overwhelming and intense and they're actually not able to cope or you don't feel able to support them? then I'd also really suggest um, seeking some more support. Um, 
I'd, I'd also always, always just say that you as a parent or family member know your child best. If you are concerned and you have been concerned um, for some time, then I really um, do suggest that you reach out to a professional to get some more advice. I'll jump to how to do that in a minute as well. Um, in terms of parenting information, um, so as I said, if you're interested in the kind of things that I've, I've just covered in the last half hour or so, but you want more of that, um, we do have a program called Partners in Parenting. Um, we've actually just released a brand new version very recently called Partners in Parenting Plus. Um, and this is essentially our, our original parenting program, plus a, a whole new section of content, a new module um, on parenting during the pandemic. Um, based on the research we've done over the last year. Um, so some of what I've just covered is including there. Um, it's an interactive online program uh, for parents of teenagers aged 12 to 17. Um, you can sort of complete it at, at any time. It's, it's pretty flexible in that way. Um, and we have also just added a, a peer support component as well. So a community for parents um, to support each other um, during this time. Um, so if you're interested in that, again, the link will be sent around, but partnersinparenting.com.au. Um, you can read all about that there. Uh, the other resources that we have, um, as I mentioned, is some parenting guidelines. So this is uh, not an interactive program. It's just a downloadable PDF. Um, and these are uh, based on the same research, so evidence-based and expert-endorsed um, strategies. Lots of practical tips in there as well. And then for these guidelines, we actually have guidelines for parents of younger kids as well. So we have our guidelines for parents of teenagers, um, just been superseded by the, the COVID-19 update. Um, so this document has lots of information. Um, these are the guidelines for parents of primary school age kids. And we also have guidelines um, about adolescent alcohol misuse as well. We are also working on, um, just to flag in the next hopefully month or two, um, we will be releasing a, a set of guidelines on supporting uh, teenagers who are struggling with school reluctance and school refusal. Um, which is also really relevant, unfortunately, at the moment. Um, and that's at parentingstrategies.net. Those guidelines all available freely to download. Um, in terms of mental health support, so if based on those, those factors I just mentioned, you are worried, you think your child might be displaying signs of a, a more of a mental health problem, um, I'd really encourage you to reach out in the first instance to your GP or family doctor. Um, or to a school wellbeing staff or school counsellor to talk about where you might be able to seek help um, for your child. Obviously, the school may be able to provide some of that health help. Um, in terms of um, online resources for parenting as well as mental health, um, the Raising Children Network, um, if you just Google that, has some really good evidence-based information. Um, that's an Australian website, um, as do both Beyond Blue and Headspace, um, as well as eHeadspace, which is their online service. Um, these are all included in that document um, that you can get um, after doing the evaluation of this webinar as well. I think that's enough uh, talking from me for a moment. Um, I believe we've got another 15 minutes or so um, for questions as well. We, I'll hand we do. Back to Jackie. Thank you, Mairead. We do have we do have questions. Um, now you take a breath, have a sip of Thank water you. <laughs> because you covered a lot of ground then. I did. <laughs> so we do have. So have you taken a sip of water? I have. All right. Good. 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 Yep. Okay. Take so um, so we've got we've got some obviously some very concerned parents, and one of the things yeah. that's come up um, is that you know my teen is very worried about getting sick 
him either himself or someone in the family getting sick and look we've done such a I mean there's been those daily press conferences and that sort of thing really have taken a big toll on on people I think so we've got that real fear Mm. so what do you suggest to assist with uh for that parent to assist their their child and how to deal with all of that and get it into perspective yeah absolutely um and yeah this is really understandable i think for a lot of families at the moment as you said we've just been bombarded um with this information for months um, and this is one example where some level of anxiety about this is really realistic. Um, and we actually don't want to be sort of trying to shield our young people completely and say, oh, well, then, you know, don't worry, you're definitely not going to get COVID. There's no risk there because that's actually not going to be helpful. Um, there is some kind of risk. So what we want to do is to help them really look at realistically um, what is the level of risk and look at sort of evidence to sort of play a bit of detective with your child in terms of how worried do you actually need to be um, look at reliable information for this even chat to you know doctors or look at information from hospitals or whatever that you know has been released by people who do know about this um, look at the information from the government websites and things um, to look at even if they do contract COVID how bad is that actually going to be um, the, the Royal Children's Hospital did a webinar last week or the week before about this um, looking at actual risk of COVID and, and in young people and teenagers and, and from what I took from that is the risk of, of actual infection in young people is, is lower um, in terms of how sick they're likely to get. Um, so we want to help them understand well even if your worst fear does come true and you do contract COVID what's that going to look like and how are we going to cope with that as a family and for you as a parent how you're going to support them if that happens so that they know that they will still manage in the worst case scenario of course we don't want that necessarily to happen but we have to expect um, some risk of that and then um, it, just some of the strategies I talked about before in terms of okay what can they control and what will help them feel safer so what can they do in terms of you know their wearing of their mask their hand hygiene their checking in and their social distancing and everything um, to help them feel more in control of the parts that they can control um, and then the gradual, as, as I just talked about, the really gradual steps. So if they're really, really anxious at the moment, then maybe taking them somewhere really busy with lots of crowds is going to be too overwhelming, but start to get them used, used to small steps in, in whatever that might look like for them to get their confidence up. And once they're confident managing, you know, just whatever it may be, going to the local park or something, then take the next step. Um, you mentioned Jackie also with the media and the daily press conferences and things, um, I think, um, and, and talk to your child about this, but think about reducing exposure. I, I don't think we actually have, finally, I don't think we have daily press conferences and numbers and things anymore, but think about, you know, do an experiment with your child. What if we just don't look at the news for a day? What if we don't know what the numbers are? Will something terrible happen? Um, and hopefully they'll actually learn that their anxiety should reduce if they stop paying attention to the numbers. Um, rather than increase. No, good advice. We've actually turned the main, mainstream media off here. Yeah. <laughs> we just don't watch. We just don't watch it, and it's been yeah, uh, it's actually exactly. Been or you limit. You just say, okay, well, we, if we need yeah. once a day or every few days, and we're going to watch whatever it may be, or look at one thing, but you really limit it so that it's not constant exposure. That's right. That's it's right. just no, it doesn't help. You know, no, it doesn't, knowing exactly. more about it doesn't tend to help. We all know exactly what COVID is now. We know exactly. what the risks are and we know what we need to do. So we want yeah. to focus on those things. No, good, good advice. Uh, so we've got one parent who's concerned that um, her teen has now shut, really shut off 
so mm. how how can they reconnect yeah yeah absolutely this can be a really tricky one um and something that I think most parents particularly in that early adolescence can feel like overnight they go from your, your young child who's really quite easy to talk to um to a, a moody teenager who's just not interested um in speaking uh, you know opening up to their parents anymore so this parent's definitely not alone um in terms of some strategies to to try to improve it sounds like they're shut off with sort of concerned about communication or getting them to open up. Um, so I'd suggest um, to, to really pay attention to any cues, any signs that they might be more open to talking. So there will be times in the day or the week or whenever that they actually are more likely to open up to you than other times. Um, you might really need to examine this quite closely. It might feel like they're never interested, but there's going to be some times when they're a bit more open um, than others. Um, for example, you know, when you're actually doing things, if you're driving in the car, if you're doing something, cooking dinner, whatever, whatever it is, um, they might be more likely to open up to you um, during those sort of activities rather than a more formal sort of, you know, sit down around the table or on the couch and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation, that might not work so well. So that might require spending a bit more one-on-one -on -one time um, with the young person, but doing things rather than just talking. So maybe try to, to ask them, you know, what they'd like to do. I want to go and do something with you on Saturday morning, whatever. What would you like to do? So try to sort of um, engage them in that process. Um, and the other important thing is to you notice those times and they, they might start to open up or something, you've really got to take that moment and be available and be ready whenever that might be. And it might not be convenient. It might be 11pm and they're meant to be in bed an hour ago and now they want to talk. So you might need to sort of really pay attention to those cues, but then make sure you're, you are really showing them that you are available to talk whenever they need. Um, and then to do, you know, as I said, that sort of validation, empathy, really to show that you're genuinely interested in what's going on for them. Yeah. Now, your parents are the cheer squad, right? So we've, we've got to be there when, when we're needed. <laughs> exactly. And sometimes it's really not going to be the right time and it's not convenient um, at uh, all, but it's really important to take. <laughs> yeah. Got to take those moments because there might be a whole yeah. day that follows that yeah. where they're just not interested. Exactly, exactly. Now, Mairead, we've got uh, uh, school refusal is a, a growing issue anyway, but now we've we've had such stop-start, you know, we're all going back, then we're not back, and then back a few years, a few year groups are back, and then, you know, then we all close down for a deep clean again, and it all, you know, the cycle just keeps yeah. going. Yeah. So, you know, and, I, and we've, we're only just back and now we're going to be, what, we've got like five weeks, I think, yeah. of school left, of school left. It's been a really messy couple of years. Yeah. How can we, re what can parents do? And I'm thinking more over the, we've got the holidays coming up. Mm. It is the, it is the ex, an extended holiday for us, yeah. summer holiday. Yeah. How can parents prepare for what is inevitably going to be a real challenge getting back to getting school? Getting back. Yeah, absolutely. And you're so right there, Jackie, that it, it's, but even pre-pandemic, that the, when school reluctance and refusal peaks, it's always at those transition periods. So after school holidays, after time away from school, even if it's after, say, illness or a holiday or something. So the, the, the first thing is to be prepared for that, particularly if your child has struggled to go back post lockdown. So if they're already um, showing signs that there's going to be hard for them to transition back, then absolutely expect that 
to potentially be an issue. We don't need to, to catastrophize and say that it's absolutely not going to happen, but that in, you know, come January, February, this is likely to be an issue. So be prepared. Have those conversations with your teenager. Involve them in the process as much as possible. Don't avoid the topic for all of the summer holidays and just think we'll deal with it the day before um, because you've got to expect that the weekend before or the day before school is when the anxiety is really going to peak. So you want to have some strategies ready to deal with that then um, start the conversations now um, even um, and, and, and similar to with the risk of COVID and whatever it is um, that's stopping them going back, we need to, or making them reluctant to go back to school, you really need to understand why. And that's going to differ for, for, for every child and every family. So we've got to look at sort of, again, what's sort of below the surface there, what is it um, that's making it difficult for that young person to get back? Sometimes they're actually going to really struggle to articulate that they actually might not know so you might need lots of conversations about this you might need to really be prompting them a fair bit um, if you're struggling to get through and you just together yourself your family your team can't figure out why it's just presenting as this anxiety and this refusal to go back to school um, then I would actually suggest um, getting some professional help because it can be a really tricky issue um, so start with talking to the school um, you definitely will not be the first or the last family to be facing this problem and as you said, Jackie, unfortunately, it's really on the rise. Um, so the school will be a good resource um, and they may also suggest seeking um, further mental health support. So linking in with a psychologist or a mental health professional. Um, and, and again, those things about gradual approach. You know, if, you, if you're anticipating this is going to be really difficult, um, depending on, on what you, the school suggests or if you involve another mental health professional, you might start with a gradual re-entry to school. So you might not go back full time from day one. Yeah. Um, you can also do some of that exposure before the school term starts. So if school mornings are really stressful, if getting them to school is really stressful and there's a lot going on in that morning, start it in the school holidays. Get up, put the school uniform on if there is one and drive to school and walk through the gate if you can or close to the gate if it's locked. So you can do some of that exposure before school actually goes back. Um, as I said, um, and people are welcome to email me or, or we'll certainly share the resource with VPC when it's ready, but we're actually going to put together a set of parenting guidelines for dealing with school reluctance and refusal. And we're very much hoping they will be ready by the end of this year, so ready for Term 1. Um, oh, school fantastic. Yeah, because it can strike at any time. That's the thing. Yes. It's not just not just at the beginning of the year and having that yeah. resource will be really handy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Mairead, we've spent a whole two years really working on screens and <laughs> trying to keep them attached to the screens for school yep. and this is a split personality with parents who are also saying get off the screens get off the screens yeah but what it's done I think is actually um, exposed children to potentially a lot more bullying online bullying and harassment um, and so we're saying to them you know you've got to be on the screen for school but then we've got we're you know leaving them in this area where they could potentially be bullied um and that's leading to a lot of anxiety. So mm. some advice there. We've got to get it right. We can't say no screens, but we yep. can, yeah, what's your advice? Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. This is so tricky because you, you need to have rules about screen time, absolutely. And, and this has sort of gone out the window when school is suddenly online. So I, I definitely sit down um, as a family and a whole family, whoever's at home, including all kids, and look at what are your family guidelines, rules. Some families have like a media plan. What What's the setup in your family? What is allowed and when? Because that 
that needs to change based on, on whether we're doing online learning um, or face-to-face -face learning, whether it's school holidays, etc. So sort of reevaluate now um, what, what the situation is in your family um, at home. Um, it's less about how much time. It's really hard if everyone wants a number. There's no magic number as to how many minutes or hours a day is okay. It's really about what they're doing online and for exactly the reasons that you mentioned. So things like cyberbullying, um, too much time on social media. Social media has been really important um, for the last couple of years, but we actually know that too much social media also is not good for our young people's mental health. Um, so we need to look at that. And it's really important for parents to know what's going on online. So we don't want them disappearing into their bedrooms for, for hours on end, having no idea what's going on. So we need to keep the conversations open with them about what's going on, asking them about the relationships they have with people online, asking them about bullying. Um, and if bullying is an issue, again, if it's with if it's people at school, I'd really be suggesting reaching out to the school. They need to be informed about bullying, whether it's happening at school or online. Um, if it's other cyberbullying that's not people from school, um, I'm conscious of time, we've got one minute, um, would suggest other resources. Um, in particular, that there's an Australian government website that's the eSafety Commissioner. They've got, if you just Google eSafety Commissioner, um, there's a great website as well there. But really talking to your kids about what they're doing online. Yeah. Um, what and what impact that's having and being and being present you know we've, we've yep. got to be around and, and see what they're doing that's for sure exactly yeah yeah yep. um look Maraid, thank you so much so can everyone join me in thanking uh, dr Maraid for being with us this evening it's been uh, a power, power packed action packed hour <laughs> um with really really useful advice so we thank you so much for your time and and for the work that you do in supporting parents um, at this at this critical time, all, all the time, but at this critical time, I mm. think we've been calling on your services from the team there at Monash quite a bit over the last couple of years, and uh, we really appreciate the practical advice that you give us. Um, it's uh, definitely helped helping a lot of parents. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. Absolute pleasure to be able to share what we're doing at this time when it's in need. Yeah, definitely. And uh, folks, there's a, a fact sheet that you will get some links, links that uh, um, Raid was talking about this evening uh, that will come your way. So please uh, finish, complete the survey that will pop up at the end of our webinar um, and uh, that will be finding its way to you via email shortly. Uh, so can I say thank you again to everyone for being here this evening. Thank you, Dr. Maraid. And uh, that's our last VPC live for the year, but we will be back next year for sure. Thanks so much, everyone. Bye now. Thank you to our guest speaker. We hope you enjoyed today's topic. Want to know more about this podcast and other VPC podcasts? Please visit the VPC website, vicparentscouncil.vic.edu.au and leave a review. We would also welcome you to contact us if you would like to be our guest or if you have a topic around parenting and education. Thank you to Melbourne singer Emma Sidney for her permission to use her soundtrack, Cherish. Until next time, thank you for listening.